Please be seated. Well, this morning I want to continue our series on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We started this series with a look at Ephesians 4, if you'll remember, where we worked out that missional equation where we found that God's grace plus the gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, when we added those together for the purpose of ministering to the people, spreading the gospel, building up the body of Christ, the result was that eventually all God's people would reach that full measure of the full stature of Christ. From there we went to Ephesians 5. If you'll remember, uh, Paul commented regarding the proper use of our time. We looked at some of the barriers with regard to time that hinder us from reaching that maturity in Christ that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. And we talked about not spending our time worrying about time, but rather spending our time taking note of those God moments, seeking out opportunities to connect with God and with one another so that we were focused on communion with Him and with each other. So today I want to move forward to Ephesians 6 and we see what Paul has to teach us about the active mission of the church in the world. Now in order to do that, I think we have to have an understanding of the environment in which we will be operating. The message of the gospel that we are commissioned to take into the world is counter to the predominant culture that's beyond those doors. There's this tendency for the world to be in opposition to the way things operate in the kingdom of God. For example, the world says that we should accept all religions as equally valid ways to reach heaven. But God's word says that there's only one way to reach heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, believing in him crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and coming again to judge the living and the dead. The world says that we are to turn a blind eye to sin in the name of tolerance and inclusion. But God's word says that we should speak the truth in love, stand up for righteousness, and flee from sin. The world says that we are to be independent and rely on our own intellect. But God's word says that we are to be dependent on our Heavenly Father for everything, and that we should lean not on our own understanding. So why does this disparity between the world and the kingdom of God exist? Why do we as Christ followers have such a different perspective or worldview? I think the division can be attributed to this. We have to ask the question, who is the dominant influence in the hearts and minds of the people living in the world? And basically, there are two types of people. 
active in the world today. There's believers and non-believers. Those who trust God and accept Christ as Lord of their life and those who don't. See, those who do not trust Jesus are by default in the camp of the devil. That's a strong statement. I know it is. But you see, even if they don't willfully or knowingly subscribe to Satan's rule in their lives, they reside in his domain. And they're influenced by his work in the world. They're influenced by him because under their own power and using their own abilities, they're just powerless to resist him. We all are. In this passage of scripture that Paul writes to us in Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So clearly, we are up against a formidable foe. As we move about the earth and carry out our mission as the church to the people, we are up against the most formidable of foes. Now, we have a message of hope to deliver. And make no mistake about it, Satan does not want that message to get to those who are under his influence. Even as believers, we are no match for the powers of the present darkness without divine protection. Now, we wouldn't think of going into physical combat without protection from the many ways the enemy would try to destroy us, would we? Spiritual combat is no different. We have to protect ourselves. And Paul gives us the ultimate armor to provide that protection. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Just like the gear that our military wears into battle, God provides the gear that we need to survive in the world while carrying out our mission. And I want to take a few minutes to look at those individual pieces of equipment that God issues us as believers. Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, the belt of of truth. See, when I was in the Marine Corps, part of the issued equipment that we got was a utility belt. I always think of Batman when I say that word together, utility belt. We would take this belt and strap it around our middle, and it would hold all the tools we needed to function in combat. There was a place for ammunition, there was a place for water, there was a place for a knife. 
place for various pouches to hold first aid kit or a compass so that we could find our direction, place for a flashlight to light our path so that we could also read in the darkness. The belt of truth functions in much the same way. See, the truth is the word of God, which provides us with ammunition to fight the battle over the souls of the lost. It nourishes us and refreshes us better than any canteen full of cool water. It cuts deeper than any knife. It's an excellent tool for dissecting the lies of the deceiver. It provides treatment for our wounds and healing for our hearts, for our minds, for our bodies, for our spirits. And it gives us direction and it orients us to the cross of Christ. And it lights our path through the darkness of this fallen and broken mission field in which we operate. That's the belt of truth. But Paul doesn't stop there. There's more equipment to be had. Paul continues, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. So if I think about my military issue, they gave us a Kevlar vest. And it was designed to stop shrapnel and foreign objects from penetrating the vital organs of the body. Putting on righteousness means putting on a mindset and a heart set of doing what the Word of God says is the right thing to do. We are to act right, do right, think right, be right. And in so doing, we protect our heart and our very lives from evil and the temptation that seeks to manifest itself as sin in our lives, sin that seeks to penetrate into our hearts right down to our very soul, take us over. That's the breastplate of righteousness to keep that sin from penetrating. Now when I think about uh, my military career, it occurred to me that we walked or marched or ran pretty much everywhere we went. Didn't matter how we got to the battlefield, whether it was by ship or plane or helicopter, truck, Humvee, you can bet that once we got to the battlefield, we would be on foot for the rest of the time. And a good pair of combat boots, or we called them LPCs, stands for Leather Personnel Carriers, They were essential equipment in completing the mission, in taking the fight to the enemy. To defeat the enemy, you have to stand before him and go at it toe to toe. In order to stand firm on the rocky ground, you have to have stability and traction and support. So Paul tells us, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. That's an interesting phrase. Whatever will make you ready. God, the possibilities are really endless there. Whatever will allow you to take the gospel to the people, 
to stand toe-to-toe against the enemy. Whatever will give you stability and traction and support, that's what we are to stand on. Because the last thing we need while we're in a fight with the enemy is to worry about where our next step is going. Proper support allows us to move freely without fear of a misstep while we focus our full efforts on defeating the enemy. So as I think about that, whatever will make you ready. Carrying the message to the people and maneuvering skillfully through enemy lines in order to get the message through to the people out there in Splendora is an important mission. It's not my mission, it's not Bobby's mission, it's our mission together. It's up to us to complete that mission, and feet have a lot to do with mission accomplishment. Paul says in Romans, but how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? Speaking of the people out there, how are they supposed to call on God if they haven't believed in him? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Feet need protection, and shoes do that. Shoes protect the feet of those carrying the gospel. Shoes are support from other believers in the church, from the church, whatever supports and advances the delivery of the gospel, Bible study, fellowship, coming together as the body of Christ to build one another up. All of that, choose to help us proclaim the gospel of peace. Now as I think about the next piece of equipment, it occurs to me that my gear as a Marine didn't include a shield. I was old core, but I wasn't that old core. In Paul's day, however, a shield was a piece of gear that defended against the arrows of the enemy. A popular tactic in ancient times in warfare was for the archers to line up and rain down arrows on the enemy before they got close enough to fight you hand to hand. In that way, you could deplete the strength of the enemy, made it easier to overcome them when they got close enough to engage them one-on-one, man-to-man. So in much the same way, the devil takes great pleasure in picking apart the strength of the believers by assaulting them with flaming arrows of fear, of temptation, of doubt, of deceitful lies designed to tear us down, to doubt our belief in God and our value to God's kingdom, to degrade our will to resist. See, our defense against the fiery arrows of the devil is the shield of faith. Paul says, with all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
what do shields do? Shields deflect. They deflect arrows, darts, blows. A shield takes the brunt of the force of the enemy's attack and protects us from harm. We use a shield to block that which might otherwise penetrate us. Faith is a barrier to all that Satan throws at us. The shield of faith. So Paul tells us that to complete the armor of God, we are to take two more things. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the helmet that I was issued in the Marine Corps was also made of this stuff called Kevlar. It was lightweight, but it was strong. It was capable of protecting my head from a potentially fatal blow. And once donned, once properly adjusted, it was comfortable and really not much of a burden at all. Now, if you've ever worn one of the old steel pots from World War II, that was a whole different helmet. But from a purely physical perspective, in the event of an attack directed at my head, it could very well provide deliverance or salvation from death. Now, in much the same way, in a metaphorical perspective, our salvation helmet protects our minds from the attacks of the evil one, whose aim is to penetrate our minds and deceive us into making life-threatening maybe even fatal errors in judgment. We're able to continue in our mission knowing that our hope in Christ, our hope in His free will, gift of salvation, protects us from eternal death, which is eternity separated from God. That's the helmet of salvation. Now the sword of the Spirit, this is, this is the only weapon that's mentioned here in the whole armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now we've already said that the Word of God is truth. Truth is the core of our armor. It's the belt that we wrap around our middle. We might even say that our protection, our defense, is centered in the truth. But the truth is also a sword, an offensive weapon, which we can use to fight, to take the fight to the enemy. Hebrews 4.12 says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of truth, the sword of the Word of God is able to cut through anything the enemy can raise against us. There's nothing the enemy can do in defense against the truth. His lies crumble when struck by the sharp blade of truth. His deceit and his trickery is sliced and diced into powerless bits and pieces when the word is applied to it with focused intensity. It's a surgical instrument that dissects unrighteousness from righteousness. 
John says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. The sword of truth purifies, sanctifies, cleanses, strips away the unclean cancer of sin from the body. The sword of the Spirit, the sword of truth. So there we have the whole armor of God. We suit up in the armor of God before we go into the mission field to do battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The whole armor of God, we dare not go into battle without it. So I want to change gears here a little bit, and I want to pause in in this discussion of the whole armor of God and circle back for a minute or two and talk about this church that is the focus of the letter from Paul. I want to focus on Ephesus for just a minute because I think this whole armor of God discussion centers around this church in Ephesus and what it means from that time that Paul was preaching to them to today. The discussion on who Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus were, is profoundly important to the entire movement of Christianity. In Acts 19, it talks about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, where he preached the gospel for two solid years. Why did Paul stay in Ephesus for so long? Why was he so diligent about establishing a small but committed church in Ephesus? How is it that a small group of Christians had so great an impact on history and the rest of the world? See, Ephesus was a port city in the Aegean Sea on the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. It was the gateway to Asia going east and the gateway to Greece and Europe if you were going west. Everything and everybody passed through Ephesus. So if you preached in Ephesus, you preached to the entire world. Now a thing about Greek and Roman culture in Ephesus at that time is they had gods, small g, gods, to meet every need. If you wanted wisdom, you prayed to Athena or Minerva if you were Roman. If you wanted success in battle, you prayed to Ares or Mars if you were Roman. If you wanted romantic love, you prayed to Aphrodite or to Venus if you were Roman. Now the favorite goddess was Artemis, who was the daughter of Zeus. She was The virgin goddess of the hunt is what they called her. She was also the goddess of the wilderness and animals and childbirth. How all that goes together, I have no idea. Her temple was the largest temple in the ancient world. It was four times the Parthenon in Greece, which is still standing. You've seen pictures of it or you've actually been there. It's a big structure. Four times the size of the Parthenon was the temple of Artemis. And the Greeks loved her and they loved their gods. 
So how could a Christian God offer anything they didn't already have? Now, as I mentioned, Ephesus was a port city. It was a center for trade for the whole world. One of the largest commodities was the slave industry, specifically the human trafficking industry. There's a problem that just won't go away. Things like brothels were like convenience stores in Ephesus in the day. Humans were bought and sold like sheep. And culturally, marital fidelity was not something that was valued. It wasn't even expected for men or women of the day. And with all of this sinful promiscuity, there were, of course, a lot of pregnancies. When a woman had a baby, the practice of the time was that before anything else occurred, before the mother got to hold her new baby, the baby was brought into the father and placed on the floor. Now I say father because it may not have been the biological father, the man of the house. They placed the baby on the floor. The father could look the baby over and if he decided to claim the child, he would kneel down next to the child And he would pick the baby up in his arms, symbolizing that he had accepted that child to raise as his own family. But, for whatever reason, if he rejected the child, all he had to do was turn his back. And the child would be taken by one of the servants, either outside the gates of the city and left to die, or the child would be taken to the agora, which is the marketplace, and be placed on the sidewalk there, either left to die or or to be picked up by someone else. So the practice of the day was that if you wanted a free human, a free human slave, you could pick up any of these abandoned babies and raise them to do your bidding. Whatever you wanted them to do, you owned them. So back to my original question. What was it that made Christians different? How did this small group of Christians have such an impact? How did Christianity move from being a radical movement in opposition to the authority of Rome to being the official church of the Roman Empire in a relatively short span of time? And the answer is remarkably profound. See, the Christians in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, this small band of Christians, were always on the watch for the babies outside the gates and in the agora, in the marketplace. They wanted to get to them before they died or before someone else picked them up. They would go into the agora and they would kneel down beside the babies and they would pick them up in their arms. And they would claim them not as slaves, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they would raise them as family. This single practice of the Christian church in Ephesus, this love and charity, changed the face of Ephesus. Because no longer were these babies just dying or being raised as slaves, but they were becoming Christians. 
And because of the position of Ephesus in the world, this practice changed the world. What a magnificent God we have who moves people into the perfect place at the perfect time to change the world for His glory and for His honor. This small missional church in Ephesus changed the world. Imagine that, a small missional church changed the world. And I wonder, are there any small missional churches in Splendor that might be up to some world changing? We have all the gear to get the job done. We have the belt of truth. Let's wrap that truth around our middle and center ourselves on it. We have the breastplate of righteousness. Let's cover our vital organs with right actions, right attitudes and motives, and let's guard our hearts against the attacks of the evil one. We have the stabilizing support of our community of believers. We have the shoes that enable us to maneuver effectively through the mission field with sure-footed purpose, balance, accountability. We have the shield of faith. And if we hold it in front of us as we advance through the community, all that comes against us will be deflected and won't harm us. We have the helmet of salvation, the assurance and peace of mind that we belong to God, that we fear God, that, we, that He's our sovereign God. And if we have the internal fortitude to kneel before God, then we can stand in front of anybody. And we have a weapon. We have the sword of the Spirit of Truth, a weapon capable of rendering all of those dark powers helpless before us. See, we're called to be the church to this community. That's what this letter to Ephesus is all about from chapter 1 till the end. And because we are called, God has equipped us with all that we need to fulfill our missional role. He's equipped us with the whole armor of God. So let's put it on and then onward to the mission field, just like the old English hymn says. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices loud, your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we. One in hope and doctrine. One in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus. 
going on before in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we come to the hymn of invitation...